0: Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deep look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design.
1: Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 say, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the seas together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. End quote. And in Psalm 89, we read that King David's throne is as the sun before the Lord, and quote, It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful, end quote. The witness in the sky, the sun, moon, stars, and the innumerable galactic hosts all declare the glory of God, showing forth his workmanship and his attributes of faithfulness, goodness, wisdom, and power. As Colossians says, the Lord Jesus is the reason for why the heavens and the earth exist. Quote, for by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. End quote. On this special episode of Good Heavens, we talk with Answers in Genesis astronomer Dr. Danny Faulkner about his latest book, The Heavens, A Different View. It is a beautiful collaborative effort between Danny and two backyard astrophotographers, Glenn Fountain and Jim Bosner. Together they have put together a stunning visual tour of the heavens as seen through their backyard telescopes. If you're listening to this on the audio podcast, there is a video version of this interview. See the link to the video in the notes of this podcast. I have a coffee table book of, uh, of uh, Hubble images that was signed <laughs> by, uh, I met um, Dr. Anton Kokomoer, who was a Hubble guy who put together the deep field pictures. And uh, so he signed his deep field picture in my Hubble book. Oh. So that's my treasure, <laughs> but but you know this does bring us to the to the very real and obvious fact that the kind of astronomy that you do, Danny, is is visual, um, and there seems to be in the sciences today like a disconnect between like visual astronomy, what uh, Jim and Glenn and, and you do, uh, and and theoretical cosmology and theoretical physics, where a lot of the sciences of the heavens are, are discoursing in things that are unseen. But uh, I love practical astronomy and what you do and appreciate this kind of work because astronomy has always been first and foremost a visual discipline.
2: I think that's what hooked me starting out. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm, The, mm -hmm.
2: the, uh, the wonder, the pictures, the images, and then the the scale of things and pictures do a good job on that. But you're you're right. I think a lot of the science today is so disconnected from the pictures anymore. (laughs) that's difficult to, to bridge the two together.
1: Right. And we're also struggling with, um, you know, I mean, you know, this is a problem, uh, light pollution in the neighborhoods where we live. I mean, um, yeah. here in Arlington, when I walk out of my office at night, um, I'm right smack in the middle of Arlington and you can't see, but a handful of stars. And if I didn't know the direction in which I was looking, I would not be able to identify anything. You can barely see on a clear night. Here in Arlington, in the middle of the city, you can barely see Orion, um, yeah, the most prominent uh, constellation at this time of oh, year in the northern hemisphere. Um, and I thought we'd uh, maybe talk about uh, let's let's start with what we can see without telescopes, okay. and um, you know, because this this will be helpful it, to to get people to go out in their backyard or to go out somewhere and to to give them uh, a marker to give them a place to start. That's Orion. That's the constellation of Orion, and there's so many uh, stories and myths attached to it, but it is such a beautiful arrangement. I mean, it is admittedly my favorite. Orion, Taurus, and the Pleiades, with Betelgeuse and Aldebaran and Atlas and his daughters, the Pleiades, the star cluster. Um, Let's talk about that. You have some visually stunning images in the book uh, from Jim and Glenn about um, Orion Talk a little bit about maybe we can go into the uh, to the sciences. What 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 are the stars in there? And uh, maybe go into a little bit of the sciences, and we could talk a little bit about the the myths and the fact that it's mentioned in scripture uh, three times. I think it is in Amos five eight, Job nine nine, and I think it's in Job thirty eight thirty one. So let's talk about Orion. On page thirty one, you have Orion and the Pleiades and other groups of stars, and uh, this is a favorite target of astronomer photographers because of some of the wonderful things that you can find uh in orion
2: yeah orion is you know one of my two favorite constellations i was attracted to it in high school a half century ago it's big it's bright it actually resembles what it's supposed to look like it does right don't, right you know, right right a man some people can't pick it out and if that's that the case then i have no hope for them seeing any (laughs) of it i have a good imagination it's not hard at all right and um you know the orion nebula there in the sword you can kind of see it in that one photograph that uh the whole constellation that shows up better than some of the others, of course.
1: Yeah. Now the nebula, it's, it's, it, you have the three stars of Mintaka, alnalam and Alnatak, mm-hmm. which are the, the girdle yes. and the pearl. Um, and then below that you have what seems like three other stars, but that middle star is not a star. It is a nebula. It's a nebula. And uh, explain a little bit what a, what a nebula is.
2: Well, it comes with the, I think it's the uh, Latin word for cloud. Yeah. And it, um, it's literally a cloud of, of gas and dust, perhaps in space. <clears throat> so it's well named. Some of the other things turned out not to be nebulae; turned out to be galaxies or star clusters.
0: Mm-hmm, but
2: mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Orion Nebula is fired up by four stars at the center, called the Trapezium, and they they provide the uh, the energy ionizing that hydrogen gas. Uh, the the Trapezium is actually photographed pretty. Uh, I think on page 43. And also, it's in 41, beautiful. You can see it as well. There are four stars close together. Yes. And uh, this is my my second favorite thing to look at through the telescope. My mm. first favorite, of course, is Saturn. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this is my second favorite thing. And it's bright. Even in, in light blue skies, you can, with a good sized telescope, you can see quite a bit of the nebula. And um, to me, I can see a little color. The photographs typically are red because they have a, a lot of hydrogen emission, uh, gas emission. Mm-hmm. The red part of the spectrum, but our eyes don't pick up red very well at all. Our, our, our pink sensitivity is in the green part of the spectrum. So most people kind of see it white, but on and I never can figure this out, but on, on some nights uh, with a moderate-sized telescope, I see this iridescent green color mm. in the Orion Nebula, and my eyes are picking up a couple of uh, forbidden nitrogen and oxygen lines smack in the middle, emission lines in the middle of the, uh, of the uh, Visible part of the spectrum, and I think wow. maybe my my green cones are a little more sensitive than most. I see green frequently enough in astronomy things, which things aren't green. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm I'm seeing um, you know, some really interesting physiological things going on in my eyeballs. But so the nebula, this
1: nebula, is- the, this nebula it, it, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. It is the only one, or one of a handful that you can. I think it's the only one you can see with the naked eye if you're in a good dark sky. Correct.
2: Yeah, the, uh, the you can see the Andromeda galaxy with the naked eye. That's a galaxy. Yeah. Um, but any other nebulae, I'm not aware of any that you can readily see with the naked eye. If you can't, it's going to be like a, a really fuzzy little dot, very, very, barely visible, very faint. This is actually quite bright. And it looks good at binoculars. It good, looks good at looks good a small telescope, a big telescope. Um, it, it really doesn't disappoint like so many things do. Um, and you see some of the structure there when you look at it with the, with the eye on page forty-three. That's that's pretty a lot what I see except for the color difference.
1: Yeah, that's what I see in my telescope. I have and a. And it's great. I have a ten-inch uh, Dobsonian that I look. I oh, do, there you I, go. I don't do astrophotography, but uh, minus the purplish and red colors that you see there, <laughs> um, I do see the trapezium very yep. very clearly. Now the trapezium, the four stars in my telescope, they look blue. They just look like blue diamonds. Yeah, and, and and they
2: they will look blue to the eye. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the uh, you see a lot of structure there, too. Uh, I, to me, I guess the bright part there looks like a couple of wings to me, yeah. to my eye visually. And you see a lot of structure with uh, you know, dark and light shading. And those are, those are caused by knots of dust clouds uh, within the nebula. Mm.
0: Um,
2: so it's a, it's a fascinating thing to look at. You can spend a lot of time looking at it. Absolutely. Um, do you ever see any? Do you ever see any green? By the way, when you look at it, I'd
1: have you know. You've got me. I'm going. That's my assignment now tonight. Uh, when I go out, I'm going to have to look at and see if I can notice the green. I think I will. Yeah. Um, I, I it's just, subtle
2: sometimes. Sometimes it to me it just blows my eyes out. It's and I subtle. wonder
1: how much you know how much uh, atmospheric. Um, interference we're talking about that adds to the to the color of maybe you know jet trails might be doing it or
2: you know i don't always see it that's the weird thing and and color sensitivity is tricky with dim light so Mm -hmm. i've never been able to figure out the trick of what you need aperture darkness you know no moon versus a little bit of moon or hard to recreate
1: it hard to recreate it yeah but i think this you know in terms of the technical aspect of what's going on with the orion nebula the trapezium those four stars i think this uh this is just one aspect of why, you know, you hear it in astronomy uh, from secular astronomers a lot that our sun is ordinary. But <laughs> I, that is such a cliche. It's not because here in the trapezium, you have, I, I would imagine, uh, these, this collection of four stars, these things are super active, powerful, and they're, they're stripping electrons off of the gas in the surrounding cloud. These things are spewing energy and creating this mess. I mean, I would think if our sun was as violent, I say violent or as active in a better word, um, that, that our solar system could be engulfed. In in gas and uh, hydrogen stripping, uh, you know brightness and luminosity and power. These these trapezium stars are very active, uh, aren't they? And compared to our sun,
2: the key is is their temperature and brightness. These are um, okay, probably B type stars. Uh, they're very hot. Their their temperature is in excess of ten thousand Kelvin. I'd have to look up the exact. So double
1: what double what our sun would be almost
2: easily and uh, you've got a lot of uv radiation and the uv radiation is what is what's ionizing that that hydrogen gas keep in mind it's also a gassy environment now the evolutionists would say this is uh, because it's it's a stellar nursery i'd make the with that but uh, it is a more gassy location than we're in we don't have a lot of free hydrogen floating around like like you do yeah. on the Orion nebula right so it's the it's the environment but it's also the hot hot uh, bright stars if they were white dwarfs, they wouldn't be bright enough. They'd be hot enough, but not bright enough. And if you had a, a large, you know, like a subgiant or giant star, it would, not, it would be bright enough, but not hot enough. You'd need copious amounts of UV uh, radiation gotcha. that stars in excess of 10,000 Kelvin can do this.
1: Well, and that's, that, uh, that gaseous environment, I think also, and I, I would assume, is also what uh, Jim or Glenn has captured in, their, in the photo of the Pleiades. Uh, with yeah. the the, the their hot white blue stars, which uh, you have that super luminous uh, intense brightness that is contributing to illuminating the gas around some of these stars. Yeah, you're right?
2: seeing this. The page is 31 and 31, two. correct? and uh, there's something a little different going on here. Uh, it's it's not a very gaseous environment. It is a dusty environment. So that little blue stuff you see,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that is um, nebulosity. Uh, it's uh, light scattering off of uh, dust particles.
1: Okay, so it's not gas, it's dust.
2: It's dust primarily. Gotcha. And uh, whenever, whenever you look at these pictures of nebulae and you see blue, it's usually indicative of of uh, dust. When you see red, it's indicative of gas, which is dominated by hydrogen. So you're seeing, uh, in one case, a rhine nebula emission of gas. Uh, in the case of Pleiades, uh um, dust clouds around some of the brighter stars and they're kicking up now those are like a type stars their temperatures are around 10,000 kelvin as i recall on um, those so they're um, a little different process uh, going on there um and, and i and i believe in the essay i, I do talk about uh, the two of them together if you turn to page 44 and 45 okay. you will see um you will see uh, uh, a rendition there of a Horsehead nebula by glenn fountain
1: yeah that's beautiful that is absolutely. Yeah, by the beautiful. way, I
2: I've got a he put a he put a nice. Uh, it's a he did this. Can you see it? It's a it's on oh, metal. It's gorgeous. And uh, it's got a little stand on it. So um, uh, it's uh, it's a beautiful piece of artwork that he gave me as a gift, and I really appreciate it. I got that I is it on awesome. I want
1: one. I want one of those. Give me Jim's contact. I'll buy one.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'll see well, what I can um, do for you. Well, uh, I was going to say there's several things going on here. Uh, the, the, the red nebulosity you see across the top that is due to hydrogen emission. Yes, and then towards the lower left, particularly on page 45, you can see that blue glow. You've got a, at least one star, maybe a couple others that are just barely inside of a of a big wall of dust. Mm-hmm. And that is um, starlight scattering off the dust particles. These are called reflection nebulae rather than emission nebulae. And that's that blue color giving it away. Okay. And and then the third part of the, uh, the thing I want need to point out is that the lower half of this this image is this big wall of dust which doesn't really go the upper half at all. And there's a little appendage of it sticking up that's got that peculiar horsehead shape. Yes. And. Uh, that's uh, if you get enough dust, what it does is it blocks the light of more distant stars. You'll notice inside that silhouette of the, of the horse head, you don't see any stars at all.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then look at the density of stars across the bottom half where it's dark and across the top half. And you can see the top half. There are far more stars. Yeah. And that's because you the lower half that that wall of dust is so, so thick. That you're not really seeing any stars beyond it. All the stars you see are this side of that that wall, but above it, you're seeing stars that are this side and beyond it as well. Okay. So there's okay. a lot of neat little physics you can kind of tweak out of this too, just by looking at the pictures. That's fascinating. The colors tell you a lot, and the darkness tells you a lot.
1: Well, you know, we have two things going on in your book, and I appreciate the way you've um, articulated. Two, two, two things simultaneously. Oftentimes, as you know, in secular science, you study all this stuff, hydrogen, gas, dust, uh, the mechanics of stars and, and what's going on and the kinds of stars. And this is all fascinating, absolutely fascinating. But in secular science, it kind of stops there. And you look at the, the, the magnitude and the wonder and, and the multiplicity of all of these things, the gas, the dust, the, the sheer beauty of what we're looking at. And science doesn't even begin to address questions of, of why it's here uh, or of meaning or of purpose. Or, you know, it's just let's study the gas, let's find the science, let's get down to the core of the nuclear fusion and whatever else is going on. But uh, your book uh, does a great job of, of combining uh, what we know of science, the, the visual stunning imagery of the universe, and ultimately why it's all here, Danny. And I, I thought uh, we could take a little theological excursion about Orion and the Pleiades uh, in Job. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, God's question to Job, and I think this brings home what the universe is all about. Of course, in Colossians we read that, uh, you know, by him all things were created, by him and for him all things were created, speaking of Jesus. But God asks asks Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? And and you have a little excerpt in the book. I don't have the page number, uh, but you have a little excerpt in the book about, uh, the the intrigue that kind of surrounds what what does God mean by binding well, that's a, in loose? That's on page thirty four, I believe. Thirty four. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's a fascinating question. I want to. So the, the theology of of what this is. What do you think is going on there in, in God's question to Job? Well,
2: it's it's tricky, and, and dealing with Job particularly, it's a it's a very old um, book of the Bible. It's got a lot of poetry in it. It is a mm-hmm. poetic book. It's mm-hmm. got a lot of imagery that. I talked to some Hebrew people, and they tell me there's some, a lot of language that's unique to Job.
1: That's right. We've got to be
2: very careful, but there's something very interesting. The um, the um, the cords of the the bands of Orion, We some people think that might be referring to the belt. And um, those three stars are moving together through space. We can measure what we call uh, proper motion of stars. They make very precise measurements, usually in photographs now. And then they come back decades later and, and do it again and then compare the position changes. Not much, but you can you can measure it. And from that, you can actually project into the past and future where they've been and where they will be. <coughs> and the, um, the um, Pleiades is a star cluster that's gravitationally bound together. And so we do an interesting thing here at the uh, planetarium. We have a stargazer night we do usually on friday nights april through october during during first quarter moon and we have staff that's involved with it and so we really can't do a rain date on any of this we we um people sign up and then if it's cloudy we do an alternate program and i do a live show inside we do q a Q&A sort of thing we do all sorts of fun things we do things normally we don't do in the planetarium We've got a very powerful planetarium projector here and then we'll call it the grand finale. And one of our staff members, she's really good at this. She's got a little script she works from. And she reads this, this verse about, about Job uh, talking about the Pleiades and the uh, belts of, bands of Orion being, uh, being bound. And what we can do is we can take the motions of um, all these stars in the sky. And with the information we have about them, we can project where they will be in a million years. And so they just run this forward and for your very eyes. And they, they say, they, we, we light up, we, we put a little a line connecting the three belt stars. We put the little lines connecting the three Pleiades stars, or the several Pleiades stars. And we run this over about 20, 30, about 30 seconds, run through a million years of the future. And stars are zipping all over the sky. And um, as you do this, the only two things that maintain their identity over this time are the belt stars, the Ryan and the. Pleas. Wow. They stay together. They, they move. They move a little bit in the sky, but they, they, that shape changes a little bit. And then they say, they ask people, well, when they get done, do you recognize any of the constellations? And of course nobody <laughs> says no. She said, well, maybe we put the little lines up in the sky to help you out. And of course, when they do it, the lines are a huge mess, like an explosion. Can't see them anymore. Yeah. Everybody laughs at that point because it's pretty obvious. And then we reverse it and bring us back. And as you do, those lines converge back to constellations. But through it all, only two things remain fixed. And I find that interesting that the two things that remain fixed are actually mentioned in Job as being something that's held together. Wow. Can you can you find them like I have? So it's wow. very powerful. If you come to visit sometime, I'll try to take a planetary and we'll show you that. That's and awesome. It's, a, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, that, I'm going to try to make that happen. Um, and what you're saying here, I, I pulled out my commentary on Job. Um, this one is uh, from the uh, New International Commentary Series on the Old Testament. It's a pretty good series. John Hartley is the commentator on Job. He says um, He says this. He says that in the ancient way of thinking, stars were believed to be controlled by chains. And each day hmm. God loosened their cords so that they could make their journey across the sky. And perhaps the suggestion, he suggests that the terms bind and loose in relation to the stars is preferable. He takes these terms to mean that uh, when a constellation rises, it is harnessed to its course, and when it's set, the harness is loosed. So it's like kite flying, in a sense, that he thinks that maybe yeah. that that there's some binding and loosing. But it got me to, to do a little digging for this question in particular, because, you know, if we do the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture— um, we have a couple of things that I thought, I don't know how related they are. I'm not, uh, I'm not an old Testament theologian, but, uh, in, in Samson's brief life in judges 14 through 16, there are multiple references to Samson being bound. You know, how, you know, Delilah, how do I bind you? How do I, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and he breaks, he breaks the cords when they, the Philistines try to tie him up. He snaps the cords. And I think I thought, well, you know, I don't think Job is referring to Samson because I think Job probably comes way before Samson. But then I thought of Jesus in Matthew 16, where he tells Peter, you know, whatever you bind in on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens. And in, in the Greek, it is plural, tonoranon, I think is what it is there in that passage. And so... I wonder, you know, through Christ, we are able to answer God. God's answer, he answers himself, right? He asks the question, can you do this, Job? No, you can't. But if I give you the keys to the kingdom in a spiritual sense, you can bind and loose. And I, I don't know if there's any immediate connection to that or not. But uh, what yeah. you say here is fascinating to me because you also point out in the book, and um, and I, <laughs> I wore my Pleiades hat today, uh, I have a Subaru, and so you mentioned Subaru uh-huh. in your book, and it's interesting, too. In, in Japan, as you point out, the, the Subaru cluster means—the uh, Subaru is the word for the cluster. It means unity. So you have, even in a Japanese culture that is not steeped in the Judeo-Christian West, you have this idea in that uh, small cluster of stars of unity, of sticking together. Yeah. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, well, as I said, you've got to be careful, Joe, but you, we've given two or three different possibilities of what it might mean here. <laughs> but, yeah. the, but the important thing is, is, is it was a rhetorical question, which God was asking a lot of rhetorical questions to Job, and the obvious answer is, well, no, you right. can't. No, you <laughs> no can't. human being no, can No, you don't know. Right, right, exactly,
1: yeah. exactly, exactly. But I think um, in terms of, it also reminded me, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 25, where uh, that, that passage where uh, Paul says, um, you know, God's foolishness is wiser than men and his weakness is stronger than men because you mentioned in the book, and, I, I you know, I don't, again, h- again, a loose connection, I don't know, because it's, it's Job's language is unique, um, that the word for Orion that is translated in English in Orion means fool. It's kassil or kessel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you look up at the constellation of Orion, <laughs> God is using the name Obviously, that something was familiar to Job because Job uses the same term in Job 9 9. Um, there's something foolish about Orion. And every myth that you read about Orion, it, it's not behavior that you want to emulate. You know, whatever the culture's myths are, <laughs> it's a bad thing if you're going to be. He, you know, he's, a, he's chasing after women, uh, he's boastful, he's a braggart, he's a hunter. But I did find it interesting that, you know, in the Orion myth, he's holding a lion at least in our Greco-Roman uh, astronomy pictures. And I think you have the picture there on page uh, on page uh, no. 34 where he's holding a lion's pelt. And it, it, that's what made me think of Samson when he killed the lion and then tried to do a riddle with his wife. Um, but he was a braggart. He was a strong man. He had problems with women. Uh, in all the myths, there's some similarities there to, to, to Samson. Um, and so it doesn't seem to be, if you look up at the constellation, it, it seems to remind uh, every culture that there's, there's something nefarious and foolish going on with this particular figure in the sky, isn't there?
2: Yep, you're right.
1: We don't want to emulate it. So we can – it's interesting because you also mentioned the gospel and the stars. Uh, and, and so I, we don't want to say here that God intended Orion to mean X, Y, or Z because he doesn't tell us what he intended it to mean. When we're dealing with constellation myths, we're dealing with the stories that we tell as human beings. Um, yep. Yep. And so so, you know, God certainly purposed them for signs and for seasons. But we're projecting our own human experience onto the stars. But I, I I would say that to say that there's probably some historicity, uh, in some capacity to the stories behind Orion, would you think?
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The um the constellations, their origins are steeped in mystery and a lot of different <laughs> weird things. Nobody really knows where they came from, who made them up, and what the whole purpose was. It's been translated and transliterated so many times, it's horribly garbled.
1: <laughs> There's an, a conglomerate of myth and speculation about what they are. So we want to be careful, that, uh, especially as Christians, not to say that God intended this to mean this, or God intended this to mean that. Obviously, he he's probably, in Job, speaking to what Job knows, not necessarily what God intended for these constellations to mean. Um, so we've got to be careful when we do our exegetics and, and, and making these connections. But uh, back to the visual aspect of these things. Orion, Taurus, and the Pleiades are all together. Um, I used to think the Pleiades were a, um, the little dipper. I mean, when you look at it, it looks like a little scoop. Or a little shopping basket with your naked eye. And then right, right next to it is the V of that, that, Taurus. That's a,
2: that's a common misconception. Very mm-hmm. common misconception people have. Yeah, know.
1: yeah. In fact, the uh, the Little Dipper is actually harder to see than the Pleiades is. I always A lot harder. Yeah, even <laughs> – Particularly even in, where you live. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, even in dark skies, it's really hard to see if you don't know where you're looking. Um, but uh, it's not yep. – Talk a little bit about the difference between a star cluster like the Pleiades and a constellation because there's a, we have the asterism constellation distinction. Let's talk a little bit about what a constellation is and uh, what an asterism is and how that fits into the Hyades and the Pleiades and the Taurus and all that.
2: Yeah, a, a star cluster is a gravitationally bound group of stars that are held together. And they are relatively small appearing in the sky. You know how small the Pleiades appears. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the largest clusters to see is the Hyades. It's a short distance away. It's the face of Taurus. Mm -hmm. And it's a little clump of stars as well. But most clusters are much, much smaller appearing because they're farther away from us than than either of those. They would not be recognized as constellations per per se. But uh, constellations are just little star figures people put together. We generally recognize and codified. Uh, 88 of those encompassing the entire sky and uh, some of them resemble what they're supposed to be but most of them are are pretty dreadful actually trying to figure out what was going on there yeah yeah. and then sometimes we'll take pieces of a constellation or maybe pieces of a couple of constellations and put together sort of a a mini constellation what we call an asterism Mm -hmm. the big dipper is a good example and the little dipper both of those are uh sub sub uh, pieces of uh, the big bear and the little bear Mm
0: -hmm. um
2: there's the teapot, one of my wife's favorites. Uh, it's part of a. It's an asterism. that's part of the constellation Sagittarius. It really yes. does look like a teapot. Right. That's becoming and, visible
1: uh, now in this time of year in the in the southern hemisphere, the southern southern part of the skies. it, it, comes well, up- it would be
2: more of a summer constellation for us. It, it, right. It's, um, starting to emerge in the morning sky. So that's in what Behind the yeah. sun for the most part now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the uh, another one would be the summer triangle: uh, Deneb, Altair, and and uh, and um, Vega. Yeah. Make up the Summer Triangle, there are three different constellations represented there. They represent an asterism as well. So Mm -hmm. these are more modern, uh, recent origin things and uh, things that help us identify groups of stars. They gave you several examples there, but they're not official groups of constellations.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and so the, in in a truly technical term, the International Astronomical Union has set aside, what, I think you said 88? Is that correct? 88, yeah. And And they're kind of, so you have, they're like cities or counties, really, of the sky. You have 88 divisions of the sky and the the main star shape is like the county seat of the the constellations. And so we say constellations. You could view it that way, I guess. That's kind of the way it's helped me to to look at that. The
2: the entire sky has been, um, if you will, the real estate of the entire sky has been divvied up that way, so there will be no more constellations. There are actually 48 constellations handed down to us from the ancient Greeks to Claudius Ptolemy nearly 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And those cover uh, what you can see roughly north of – uh, latitude 34 degrees or so back several thousand years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So there are vast regions of the southern part of the sky we don't normally see that were unremarked uh, un, uh, upon by the ancient Greeks. Yeah, yeah. And so it, a lot of those were created, the constellations there were created in the last 400 years astronomers went down there and began identifying new constellations of their own. Mm-hmm. And it was a mess to try to sort those out. It was not really codified until 1930, I think, when the a- IAU Actually set it up, and they they killed some old constellations. They they even tore apart one of Ptolemy's constellations into <laughs> three pieces. Wow, so, wow. Um, well, and, so and most of them are still Ptolemaic. Uh,
1: Ptole- Ptolemy's took from what was preexisting in his day. So he's he's what second century, second century A.D. Yep. And he went back yep. to uh, he in in his Almagest. These things just appear, so they must have preexisted Ptolemy. Uh, going all the way back to to Babylon, correct? The Babylonians. Oh, even some, earlier than that.
2: Uh, many people. He did a star catalog of over a thousand entries, and many scholars today believe, uh, historians believe, that he actually took Hipparchus's uh, star catalog. Hipparchus is like second century BC, mm-hmm. and uh, just updated that. We do know that Hipparchus had a star catalog. We don't have a copy of it, though. And there were other star catalogs before that, though not as detailed. However, you can do some interesting sleuthing. There's a there's an effect called precession, where the uh, precession of the equinoxes, where the star's position slowly change over a 26,000-year cycle. The most obvious uh, shift is um, in the pole star right now. Polaris yeah. is close to the North Celestial Pole, but it wasn't like that until about 400 years ago. And in the future, it won't be, uh, say, 2,000 years ago, there was no pole star, uh, no North Star. And um, people long ago, about probably in the 1800s, uh, Took the Ptolemaic constellations, applied precession to it, and they were able to figure out roughly uh, where and when the constellations that Ptolemy gave us were were deduced. Uh, The where is around 34, 35 degrees north latitude, give or take a degree or two. And the time is very interesting. (laughs) It's about the middle of the third millennium BC, Mm. give or take a couple hundred years. Wow. So it predates. Me by more than 2,500 years, Whoa. which suggests suggest that they've been around a lot longer than anybody could have imagined. How it's preserved is another question. Wow. Um, but it's, I find it fascinating that, that that time period and that location uh, really coincide well with the immediate uh, post flood society recorded in Genesis. The time and the location is the the plain of Shinar is is we know where that is. That's thirty four degrees or so, thirty five degrees north, and the time frame's about right. So, it would seem to me that that um, once the Tower of Babel was built, that the constellations are already codified and people carried those those Stories. traditions with around the world, mm. and that would explain why there are uh, similarities or differences, but similarities. For instance, many yeah. cultures saw. saw in Ursa Major, uh, big big dipper, if you will, a large bear and a small bear and a little dipper, and uh, if you can, I can pick out I can see the big bear. And the little bear is a little harder for me to see, um, but the, the perplexing thing is they both have long tails, which bears don't have long tails. Right, they, right. They just have a little little stub outside of my fist. You know, they've got tails, but not much of a tail. And uh, I don't think there's any evidence that there ever were long-tailed bears. And uh, you could say, well, people in Northern Europe, the Celts, the Germans, uh, were kind of related, connected to Babylon, you know, the same continental landmass. So there's some cultural contamination going on. That's fine, but how do you explain many North American tribes <laughs> having two bears in the sky? That's right. And everywhere you go, people had these weird stories about how the bears got to get their long tails. So they recognized it was a problem, and and so. Why did they all see bears? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious that they saw it because of a connection. Now, if you believe in the, uh, the evolutionary time scheme, uh, the Native Americans, their ancestors arrived here 10,000 or more years ago, long before the constellations were codified. Yeah. But if you believe in the biblical time frame, it perfectly fits. I mean, It's amazing yeah. Yeah. how well that fits. So we've well, kind of an evidence here in the Book of Ecology. I think it's correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just did a podcast um On flood stories not not too Mm -hmm. long ago about the similarities among the Americans uh, going all the way up to Canada um, through uh, North America Central America Mexico and South America that how do you explain indigenous cultures that had no communicative connection with one another how do you explain the similarities in their myth and if you go back to Babel and you go back to uh, human beings spreading out, taking their stories with them in, in different languages. It makes perfect sense why you would have Native Americans all across the North American, South American board yep. having similar stories. Um, Wayne and I have speculated, and I, it's something similar to what you just described, that, um, you know, post-flood, uh, why, why would we have bears in the north? I mean, I don't finally know, but, but, but certainly what do we find in the Arctic Danny, I mean that's the wonderful thing that, that polar bears are in the Arctic, right? You have yep. you have and, and you have Arcturus, which if you speed to Spica, or you arc to Arcturus? How does that that little limit go? You, no.
2: you arc to Arcturus and spin off to Spica.
1: Yeah, and if you come off the tail, quote unquote, the tail of Ursa Major, uh, you you go to Arcturus, which which means bear watcher, um, mm-hmm. and then in the Antarctic, which means no bear. So you, you have well, the, uh,
2: the art, the name Arctic was given by the Greeks uh-huh. and, um, the, uh, the word, the Greek word for Arctic is, is, uh, is bears bear. Arctic. Right. Right. And they, so uh, apparently they associated bears with the far North. Now, why? I don't know, but I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Did they yeah. know about polar bears at one time? Well,
1: and I, I wonder, and this is just my pure speculation. I wonder, you know, Noah, and his family gets off the boat, and they they watch the animals go. I mean, I don't know what that was like the the, distri- the redistribution of of animal population in the earth. They watched <clears> the animals <throat> leave. I guess the ark, and and <clears throat> maybe bears went north. You know, who knows? <laughs> but you're right, Danny. Uh, the the similarities in these tales. I mean, if you go from From Japan, if you go to the Orient, you find—the other thing that is fascinating, and I didn't notice if you had pictures of it or not, but uh, Draco. I mean, why do all of these cultures have have a dragon story uh, and a circumpolar serpent-like creature that is hostile to mankind? I mean, there's—it's fascinating. You have Cetus, and you have Draco, and you have have the water snake, and you have um, uh, the Ophiuchus, who is a serpent handler— you have this idea of, of, a, of a serpentine, reptile, creature-like thing that lives in the sea that is hostile uh, to mankind. And I find this to be fascinating as well, that we have this, why would there be a serpentine opposition to human existence uh, in our constellation stories? And it seems very biblical in, in some sense that, that this is a reflection to some degree that, that there is a spiritual, a real spiritual and perhaps physical uh, <clears throat> enemy enemy that uh, that, that's, that cultures of all times and pasts had known about.
2: Yep, I didn't do Draco in the book because that's a, a difficult constellation to pick out.
1: Yeah, it's even tough. if you know where it is, it's even in a dark sky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> even in a dark sky, I have to find the triangle head. And then even if yeah. you find the triangle head... It's really hard to trace the the, it the, is. the serpent's it's body. It's really hard. So it's it's visually it's not easy to photograph. star clusters are one of my favorite things to look at in the telescope. I absolutely love it. You have a picture uh, on page uh, thirty-eight and thirty-nine. Um, Glenn has taken these pictures. Glenn Fountain. Um, this just looks like a luminous cotton ball to at first yep. glance. Um, but tell mm. our tell our listeners and viewers what we're seeing here. This is M. 13, a designation of uh, the Messier catalog or the new galactic catalog. The new, uh, what's the NGC? New galactic catalog. New general catalog. Um, These are classified, you know, scientific nomenclature, but visually, what are we looking at here, Danny? This is fascinating. I mean, I've got photographs of
2: M3 and M13, and these are uh, what we call globular clusters. And the thing is with globular clusters that we call them that because they have a globe sort of appearance.
0: Mm-hmm. If you
2: pick the book up and you look at any one of these and you spin the picture around,
0: mm-hmm. it
2: doesn't matter which way you look at it, it looks the same because there's a you know a globe or a ball, if you spin a circle, if you spin it, it has the same orientation. Yeah. Now the other type of cluster is called an open cluster. The Pleiades is an example of that. And on the previous page on page 27, there are three photographs of open clusters. And um, there, are th- there are several differences between the two. Number one is that globular clusters are grand. They hold tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of stars.
0: Mm.
2: Open clusters, only a few hundred to maybe a few thousand. So they're not nearly as rich as globular clusters. The other huge difference is the lack of symmetry. If you take a picture of the Pleiades or these three cl- these three um, open clusters on page 37, mm-hmm. you turn the book upside down, they look very different. Because yeah. they, they don't have that symmetry, that radial symmetry to it. Yeah. So um, I truly love globular clusters. When I'm showing people things through the telescope here at the observatory at, at the Creation Museum, I like to show them a globular cluster. M3 and M13 are some of the, the, two of the best choices. Yeah. Because uh, with some of the telescopes we have, you not only capture that glow of all those stars, but you can pick out a few individual stars with your naked eye. Yes. Um, yeah. Sort of like what the photographs look here. Not quite as bright, but Uh, They're fantastic, uh, beautiful things.
1: To give people a perspective of what we're looking at here, um, contrast. So these just it just looks like a blob of light. Um, But what what this really is, these each of these stars, many of them are probably much more massive and in size than our sun. And our sun is pretty big. I mean, but comparatively speaking, um, what is it? One hundred and nine Earths can go across the diameter of our sun. Right. Um, so these are these are clusters of
2: stars that are enormous. It turns out the density of stars are pretty tight in there. When you get down to the core of these things,
0: mm-hmm.
2: the um, the stars are probably uh, only uh, fractions of a light year across, okay. apart from one another. They only recently discovered binary stars in these things, because the stars are so closely packed, binaries tend to get ripped apart. Okay. But um, if the if the if the Sun were inside of a globular cluster, there would be so many bright stars. these are giant stars in one directs the seeing, the brighter ones uh, that it would be like living uh, in a major city, even when you go in the countryside, and we would have no knowledge of galaxies out beyond us because they would be too faint to be seen. Oh wow, if We'd we were to live inside of a globular cluster. Wow. So the density there is quite large. And uh, some fascinating things going on there, but these are mostly giant stars. You're seeing the bright ones. Now, would um, these
1: would these stars be? Uh, I would imagine, by what you're saying, that that would these stars still host planets, even though they're so densely packed together.
2: That's that's debated. <laughs> I think they found a few planets now, but uh-huh. and these things. But the problem is, is that because the density of stars are so great in globular clusters, the stars often interact with one another, come close, and that would have a tendency to uh, gravitationally affect any planets that you have. It's a good thing we're not living in a globular cluster because not only would, would deep, deep space astronomy be impossible, but uh, there would be a good chance that a star would pass through your um, uh, your your solar system from time to time and uh, wreak <laughs> havoc upon the orbits of planets. It's not a not a place you want to go looking. for. No, life. no, no. <laughs>
1: uh, which which is further testimony to the to the fact that uh, that uh, we are in a unique situation here in our own solar system. Uh, not yep. and and I know I know you know um, Guillermo Gonzalez. Uh, Guillermo has the, the his book the the uh, privileged planet, um, and he talks yes. ab- he talks about the position of our Earth within our galaxy. Um, enables us to see a large percentage of the rest of the universe. If we were in a dense field of stars or enlightened hydrogen-illuminated gas or something like that, we couldn't see anything. It would be like light pollution in cities, as you said. Uh, So further testimony that God put us here, I think, and and intended us to to see things. Um, Let's move out away from uh, these clusters of stars. Let's talk uh, large-scale here. Uh, Andromeda is our nearest neighbor. Set up what a galaxy is because— this is fascinating to me. I mean, I, I know what a galaxy is, but it's fascinating that we didn't know what these things really were um, in the last 100 years. This was 1920s when Edwin Hubble um, put uh, the Mount Wilson 100-inch Hooker telescope to these things and uh, ended the debate between him and Shapley. Uh, Shapley thought, uh, Harlow Shapley thought these things were uh, clouds in our own Milky Way. And uh, Edwin Hubble said, no, 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 Shapley, Um and he wrote Shapley a letter. I love this. He wrote Shapley a letter when he discovered the, the variable, the Cepheid and uh, the Cepheid in uh, Andromeda. And he says, uh, you know, hey, hey, Harlow, guess, guess what I found? Andromeda is a galaxy. And Harlow is said to have said, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. You know, so Hubble wins the debate. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's the 100-inch hooker telescope, Hubble's discovery. And then he was showing the photographic plates shortly after his discovery to an English poet who came to visit him. Her name was Edith Sitwell. And he showed Edith the pictures, and he told her what these were. And her response was, how terrifying. So really, this is this is a phenomenal thing that I think is so underappreciated in astronomy. Uh, just in the last hundred years, we've realized exponentially how, how enormous our universe is yep. be- because of what Hubble discovered about galaxies. So, Danny, what is a galaxy? Why is this fascinating? A galaxy
2: is a collection of a few hundred billion stars uh, orbiting around a common center of mass it's much bigger than a than a uh, than a star cluster in fact you would find star clusters within a uh,
0: mm-hmm. within
2: a galaxy as you said our own our own galaxy is the milky way named so because of that bright fuzz of light that goes completely around the sky mm-hmm. in the northern hemisphere in our summer it's, it's the best brightest part to see people in the southern hemisphere get a better view though however um but you're right. In 1924, Hubble was able to show in one fell swoop that the biggest and brightest of the so called spiral nebulae, what they were calling them then, thought they were gas clouds that were solar systems that were forming. Uh, he showed that it was actually a, a distant, uh, well, actually a nearby, but it's still a distant group of, of stars. And by implication, all the others were as well. And you're also correct that the universe got suddenly very big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, up to that point astronomers generally thought the, the Milky Way was the universe, the galaxy the universe used synonymously mm-hmm. there were people going back to the 1700s that were saying well maybe these things are, are just what we call island universes, other galaxies yes. like ours, beyond ours right. but that was speculation and not really taken seriously particularly by the end of the 1800s <clears throat> and, I've, and I've wondered about this, so why didn't it have a bigger philosophical impact uh, hmm. on, yeah. on life uh, I think uh, maybe general relativity had already done that a few years before published in 1915 and confirmed pretty quickly that had a huge impact psychologically and philosophically with people and maybe they were just shell-shocked at that point Yeah, but the uh, to me that's huge the universe suddenly becoming far larger than you could ever imagine it's like you spend your entire life in a house and then you venture out one to there's a state is there's a state there's a nation not only is there a nation there's a whole planet of other things out there you never knew about right. that is the kind of thing kind of think back um, was about 50 years ago they discovered a, a, a tribe a small tribe living i think in the philippines and they were the last reached people and they thought they were the only people in the world yeah. <laughs> and they yeah. had no idea anybody existed <laughs> outside of them and uh, what a what a uh, what a, a a real change in in worldview that must that must have had. Right. Well, I
1: I think it was um, Immanuel Kant who who suggested the island universe idea, and then uh, 1750. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And then I think you know mm-hmm. it's interesting, Danny, because I think this this exponential increase in size of our galaxy. Has led to the conclusion of secularists who study the universe to conclude that uh, we're so small, we're insignificant. I mean, you hear that mantra, that rhetoric, all the time. Uh, we know how big the universe is, and look at our planet and our pale blue dot. Carl Sagan, of course, uh, popularizes this in the 1980s. Um, and so, Harlow
2: Shapley, you mentioned already, mentioned he played a role in this too.
1: Yeah. So this this idea that, and I think it's 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 a non sequitur. It's 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 simply the argument that because we're small and because the galaxy is so enormous uh, that we must be insignificant. But uh, you can see from uh, our last couple of years of dealing with COVID uh, that something that is small isn't necessarily insignificant. <laughs> um, uh, but 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 that I think philosophically you you touched on this um, that that there was an implication sort of a backfire effect. Now now cosmologists and astronomers who, who can crunch the numbers and do the math are telling the general population uh, who aren't so sophisticatedly knowledgeable about physics and science and cosmology, hey you guys you know what, we did the math, we have our telescopes we did the science um, we're small and therefore we're insignificant and then the the further conclusion with, with, with that, that atheists and skeptics take this is that there must not be a God because um, why would God create all this space, um, if, if it was all for us, which is another misinterpretation of the, of, of what the universe is for, because yes, he designed it to be inhabited, but, but it's not all about us, right? It's about what you say in the book, the glory of God, the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, and so I think, I think you would agree that the, the discovering the expanse, discovering the exponential size increase in our universe, uh, attests more to the glory of God.
2: You well, know, you know, this reminds me of, of David in Psalm 8 raising this question about our ultimate place and meaning and purpose in the universe. He comments how how insignificant man seems to be in the scheme of things. And God, why do you even care about us? And uh, this is the kind of question that's been asked many, many times. You mentioned Carl Sagan. He raises the same sort of question in uh, one of his, I think this may have been his last book that he published, Pale Blue Dot, mm-hmm. talking about the... Uh, the fragility of the earth and that that little incredible photograph from the voyager probe showing the earth as a pale blue dot two pixels in that thing yeah and uh, same sort of question david was asking with much high, high higher powered sorts of arguments today i guess with space travel and, and uh, space photography and so forth you know david didn't do too badly sitting in the Judean hills probably two or three thousand feet above sea level in a mediterranean climate i'm sure he had a a lot beautiful, of time at night. Beautiful dark box, skies. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. dark skies. And he used his own two little photometers he had called eyeballs to look at things. He raised the same sort of question. <laughs> and, you know, um, this, this whole thing, if you look at it from a from an atheistic world or agnostic worldview, it's very depressing because the universe yeah. is very big. The universe does not care about you. <clears throat> there's no purpose. There's no meaning in life. Uh, we're born. We live. We die. And that's the end of us. And the uh, universe the universe
1: is, wants to kill us, right? It's Yeah, that's it's basically deadly. it. Yeah.
2: And, you know, in Carl Sagan wrote that book is a series of essays trying to find purpose and meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think he failed miserably because he he approached it from an agnostic viewpoint. There is no God. So there is no purpose. There is no meaning. But I'm going to try to find purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. And his argument basically was well, we have accomplished a lot of cool things, you know, art, music, literature. Wouldn't it be a shame if we destroyed it with nuclear war and climate change? and my response would be well who cares what's the uh, point the evolution is driven by extinction our time is coming and when we're yeah. gone nobody's going to shed a tear so why are you shedding a tear now prematurely we'll be gone one day and that's the end of it yeah uh, so uh it's that's a really a super depressing approach but you know david david answered that question very effectively he, he had the two-point answer first answer was the fact that we were created just a little lower than the heavenly beings, but we're crowned with glory and honor. And this gets back to Genesis 1, 1, where we're created in the image of God and in his likeness. There's mm. something godlike about us. And that gives us a special status and creation above anything else that's ever made out there.
0: Right.
2: And I think uh, the whole dissertations and books have been written on what this means. I think a large part of it is our... Social ability, our interactions—the fact we can talk with one another—we have a need for companionship and interaction. We're social creatures. We're designed that way. And animals aren't like that at all. And they obviously Adam could see that didn't fulfill it. The other part of his answer was based on dominion. Uh, We were given charge of things. Going back to the Garden of Eden, we are we are charge of this planet. Uh, We can use the resources that are here, but we ought to use them wisely. So it's not a matter of. Of you know conserving everything for whatever purpose in the future or just using them all up right now. No, there's a careful balance, and Christians really need to take that careful balance right. of, of using uh, using resources wisely. Mm-hmm. So, um, I love David's answer. It, it it runs circles around around Carl Sagan's answer because it's based in creation. It's based in Genesis, mm-hmm. and apart from that. We have no purpose. We have no meaning, yeah. and I think that's the whole answer to the fact that, that the universe is big. And I think it's an advertisement of God's power and glory that goes Psalm nineteen, Romans one nineteen and twenty, so that men yeah. are without excuse, there is a Creator. who's very powerful. Right. But on top of on top of that, um, uh, God deigned to consider us very important. We, we right. are the center of His attention. And he desperately wants to have a relationship with us.
1: Well, and and the other thing, Danny, too, that this touches on is is, not just meaning and purpose, but ultimately, and as you know in your experience, every time you discourse at length with anybody about the universe, the big questions always surface. David's question is systemic to our entire existence as human beings. Why am I here? What is all this? Is is there a reason? Is there a purpose? Is there a God? I mean, you even in the most erudite secular cosmologists um, and and atheist philosophers, when they talk about the cosmos, God always comes up. You know, it's it's unavoidable that his 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 name, his character, um, it is counterintuitive, really, to to deny. You really have to work really hard to try to put together arguments for God's non-existence from the universe. Um, and, and all of the pro- propositions I've seen are the arguments. That we've talked to uh, some of the best atheist philosophers on our Atheist and Christian Book Club. I've interacted with uh, Lawrence Krauss on our book club. I've read a lot of cosmology. God always comes up, and the reasons for why God might not exist, um, Just it, it's just an exercise, it seems like, as you say, in futility, to try to continually argue for God's non-existence, because the more people argue for God's non-existence, I think, the more that demonstrates exactly what David says, that as you look at the universe, you are looking at uh, a declaration of God's glory. Um, and one of the other things, and we talked about this at the beginning of the, of, of the talk, is um, the beauty of the universe, and now that because of telescopes, uh, as you say in the book, you know, Jim and Glenn and anybody else with a, with a telescope today, we can see things and take pictures of things that astronomers couldn't do uh, in the last century. You know, so the technology for the layman has improved, you know, tenfold, hundredfold in, in, in magnitude. But let's talk about the beauty of some of these galaxies as we're still talking about galaxies. Um, you have on page 19... Uh, A picture from Glenn uh, of M33, which it just looks like a rose garden to me. It's somewhat of a spiral, kind of a spiral. There are different structures that I think Hubble came up with the classification for basic galaxy structures. Um, But this just looks like a rose garden to me. You have these beautiful rose-like colored gems along the spiraling, faint spiraling arms there. Um, And it just... Just comment a little bit about what's going on in this picture. It's it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just <laughs> well, this, sheer beautiful.
2: This is a, um, a spiral galaxy. It's loosely wound spiral arms. Uh, M33 is um, kind of close to us, a bit farther away than Andromeda, and it's a little harder to see because intrinsically it's fainter. It's a little farther out, and it's also turns so that we're looking nearly face on to the the disk of the galaxy rather than edge on like with the Andromeda galaxy. And uh, those red glows you see, those are what we call H2 regions. Those are emission regions. The uh, Orion Nebula is an example of an H2 region. Um, They're powered by hot, bright stars. So when you see those, uh, you're seeing firing up H2 regions big time. And for some reason, they really show up in in the Triangulum Galaxy more than the others. Mm. This was a difficult one to see. I've seen it a couple of times, but it its surface brightness is so faint that it doesn't show up. It photographs reasonably well. Mm. But it but its surface brightness makes it difficult to appreciate with the eye. Does so do you know a, how
1: long um do you know how long Glenn uh had to, to do exposures to get that that stunning imagery there? I mean he right, must have probably
2: an hour or so, I'm gonna guess. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And, and then, the way you the way you do that is you take a bunch of short images and you stack them. It works better than just taking a long exposure. Gotcha.
1: And on um page sixteen and seventeen. Uh, Jim and Glenn have uh, photographed Andromeda, which is our nearest yep. neighbor. Now, in a dark sky, if you know Pegasus and, and the constellations, you can trail out and find Andromeda with your naked eye if you're in the dark sky. This is one – this is what I like to do when I find Pegasus and I'm out near a dark sky. I'd like to go, oh, yeah, there's Andromeda. It's fun to see that. Um, but this is our nearest neighbor, right, in terms of a, a yep. galaxy. Um, one of the of few, any size. Yeah, of any a size.
2: Small galaxies, are, yeah. yeah
0: hmm.
2: And um, it,
1: it's probably um, uh, mo- astronomers think it's moving toward us. Is that correct? That's actually yep. one of the yep. few galaxies. We're on a collision course. I keep hearing this over and over again. Um, <laughs> but uh, but not, not for any length of time. Yet, not, though. not in our lifetime. <laughs> um, but uh, what's going on in Andromeda? This is a classic spiral.
2: It is. And it's a, a large one. It's a little larger than our own galaxy. And as I said, it's a classic spiral. It's nearly edge on. You can see particularly on that inset photograph on page 17, uh, some of the dust lanes in the uh, uh, in the spiral arms. You can also see two satellite galaxies in either image. Mm -hmm. You can at the center, you can see the nucleus of the galaxy. And then on either side are these little satellite galaxies. They're little elliptical galaxies. They orbit around. That's pretty common to find satellite galaxies. Our own Milky Way has two satellite galaxies, but according to Faulkner's um, observe, rule of observing number one, you can't see it from this latitude. you got to go to the southern hemisphere to see it.
1: <laughs> okay. Um,
2: they're right. called the large and small Magellanic clouds, and they're oh, actually yes. quite impressive. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they look I have like not. Pe- they look like pieces of the Milky Way that you've kind of plucked out and threw off into space. Oh, wow. They're, okay. they're, they're really impressive. God put all the good stuff in the Southern Hemisphere. You need to go to, say, Chile sometime to the dark oh, site. Oh, I would, would love be to. be stunned.
1: I would love to. I, I've heard so much wonderful things about it. Um, on page 20 and 21, we have a couple of more galaxies. These are beautiful. Um, now, it's funny. You tell the story a little bit about uh, Charles Messier, who his friends and contemporaries in his time period, 18th century, called him the comet ferret. Uh, I don't know if that was an epithet attached to him contemporaneously or if (laughs) if that was later, but uh, he was on the hunt for comets. um, And, of course, he had limited telescope uh, capabilities back in the 1800s. But uh, Messier was a a detailed observer of the sky, and uh, I can picture him in his French accent. Going, that is not a comet, and so he would write it down on the list. You know, he'd see a fuzzball in the sky, and he'd write it down at least That is not moving. That is not a comet. Ignore it. You know, so he made this. He ended yep. up making about a hundred or so uh, a list of a hundred or so objects to avoid if you're comet hunting, because these were fuzzy nebulae that uh, he he could he couldn't focus very well on his telescope. So he he these just looked like fuzz, and we just want to ignore it. But what he ended up doing was cataloging some of the most beautiful and iconic uh, images, uh, uh, entities in our universe. These are nebulae and galaxy. And and now we know that the Messier list, anything designated with an M, is is a target. You don't want to avoid it. You actually want to go look at it because these things are
2: stunning. Uh, it's, it's ironic, ironic that, isn't it, that he didn't like these things. Yeah, that's uh, right. It, it,
1: yeah, to pay no attention to the fuzz in the sky. <laughs> and yet he's accent. known for
2: this. That's, 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 that's what's funny about
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. Please avoid them. Um, but now there's Messier marathons. I'm sure you've done it. I, I haven't done one yet, but uh, what, what is it? Late spring where you try to catch, you got to catch them all. Yeah, all there's
2: with... there's an interval of like a week with no moon that you can do it. I've never tried it, but you can try to get all 100 or so of them in one night. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, a, it's a cooperative one, effort. One or two nights you can do it.
1: Right, right. Um, the other galaxy that I wanted to, to, to mention, and this is beautiful, the the one on page twenty four, the one on page uh, twenty four uh, on and twenty five, Messier fifty one. It looks like father, mm-hmm. what I call the father and son galaxy. It looks like a uh, a giant father spiraling, whirling galaxy uh, attached to what I think would be an elliptical galaxy. It is it is off the tail of the Big Dipper, I think, off the handle of the Big mm-hmm. Dipper. Is it not? Uh, it's called the Whirlpool uh what how big is this thing what is what's going on with the whirlpool here
2: well it's just a, a very grand spiral it's got very very detailed spiral arms nearly face on and i believe this may have been the first galaxy that spiral structure was clearly visibly seen uh through a, with this for photography but i think lord ross may have been the one who saw that with the leviathan telescope very clearly but um it's not that far away. It's about the size of the Milky Way, probably. It's a good-sized galaxy as well. Mm. And um, it's got that companion off the end of one of the spiral arms.
1: Wow. Well, and the other fascinating thing that you, you mentioned in the book is we're going through the galaxies here in the first first part of the book. Uh, Glenn has photographed, and this is just one, um, galaxy clusters. So if 110,000 <laughs> light-year galaxy, if the enormity of galaxies don't blow your mind, how about galaxies clustering together? Um, Wayne and I have talked about these things, um, that they are – some of these structures, Danny, uh, are indicative – they're too big to – they don't fit into the Big Bang cosmology because they're in early parts of the universe where if you take the secular paradigm, there's not enough time for these things to form and cluster together in the superstructures that, that they are. They've discovered a multitude of structures that are enormous. Um, but they've also discovered things in the universe like the, the great void in Bootes, the, the shepherd, that the, there's no galaxies in terms of where they think there should be a multitude of galaxies. So these clusters are amazing too, clusters of these enormous structures as well. And Glenn has, uh, I think it's Glenn, yeah, Glenn has uh, documented uh, these clusters in the in the Hercules cluster, uh, what's going on when galaxies cluster together? Is this like a like star clusters only on a galactic scale? Same kind same kind of thing. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, there's a hierarchical structure. Um, I think they were clusters were discovered in the 1930s, right mm. after Hubble realized what was going on. Then people uh, the, the um, Hercules cluster was one that's found early on. The Coma cluster was another one. Uh, there's a guy named George A. Bell, who in the late 50s did a dissertation where he was doing uh, studies of clusters, probably one of the first system that has studied all of these things. I remember reading Fred Hoyle back 50 years ago, more, where he was suggesting that it was just uh, you know clusters of clusters of clusters of clusters of clusters clumping ever higher structures throughout the universe. At the time, most people kind of dismissed it. But it was about 40 years ago, they began to discover voids and began to discover sheets, and now what, what we know is, what we understand is that you end up with clusters of thousands of galaxies. And keep in mind, each galaxy contains a few hundred billion stars. So you've got a lot of material here. But you've got a cluster here. And then there'll be a cluster nearby and another cluster nearby. And those clusters are kind of arranged in big sheets or in bubbles. And you get this filamentary structure. And in between those sheets of bubbles you find very few galaxies. They're not totally empty, but there's not many there at all. And that seems to kind of get back to Hoyle's suggestion of a long time ago of this uh, hierarchical structure. It's now believed that this hierarchical structure goes all the way up to the the largest scale of things. At one time, they used to assume that it would smooth out on the big scale. I don't think they think that anymore.
0: Mm. But
2: on top of that, as you mentioned, uh, some of these structures are so big that you don't have enough time within a big bang cosmogony to, to explain how those structures developed. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't do extra galactic, galactic astronomy, but to me, one of the most fascinating things is this hierarchical structure of, and the sheets and so forth. Nobody saw that coming. That was a big surprise four decades ago when that began tumbling out.
1: One of the fascinating things that you mentioned is, is something about our sun that I actually never considered. Um, that if Big Bang cosmology is true, and we have we're, we're dealing with billions of years, um, talk about the Sun paradox. What what's a problem? What what where where is evidence with, with our Sun that it's probably not 4.5 billion years old? What, what's your perspective? Yeah, on that?
2: That's called that's called the young faint Sun paradox. We uh, we have very elaborate theories in in astrophysics to explain where stars get their energy and there's actually evidence to support this it's fusion of hydrogen into helium in the cores of stars for instance over the past half century we've we've detected neutrinos coming from those reactions there was a bit of a mystery there for a number of years but it's now been resolved where well, we have very good evidence now we know what kind of processes are powering the sun and this would power the sun for 8 or 10 billion years so far so good <clears throat> however with time the um, the consumption of hydrogen fuel results in a buildup of helium, ash, as it were, a byproduct in the cores of stars. And that, uh, without getting too much into the physics of this, the, you're, you're doing a net reduction in the number of particles involved. And that changes the molecular weight. If you know anything about the ideal gas law, that then changes the pressure, volume, and temperature. The upshot being that as the um, as the sun ages, any star ages, the uh, core of the star will tend to contract and get hotter and denser. That will tend to drive the reaction rates up faster. They're very sensitive to temperature. So with time, we would expect the uh, energy production of the, of the sun and other stars throughout their lifetimes to to increase. And we can calculate pretty accurately what that would be. And so um, it turns out that if you go back uh, three and a half billion years ago, when when life supposedly developed on the Earth, the sun was only a billion years old or so, the sun would have uh, been significantly fainter back then, about uh, 30% hmm. fainter than it is today, 25 or 30% fainter. If you run the numbers, and I've run the numbers, um, you find if you change nothing else, then the overall temperature of the Earth's surface temperature would, be, would have been about... Uh, 17 celsius lower than it is now wow and the tip te- the average temperature on the earth today is 15 celsius so that's minus two which in real temperatures like 28 degrees fahrenheit that would be the average temperature of the earth the polar regions would be much colder and uh since the average temperature would be below freezing that would have resulted probably in an ice ball planet kind of reminds me of the planet and second star Wars movie over totally iced over. Yeah. And the situation from which the earth never could have recovered because of the albedo effect reflecting of, um, of sunlight off of the ice and snow. Well, nobody believes that. I mean, conventional geologists and biologists think the average temperature of the earth over the past three and a half billion years has fluctuated a little bit, but not changed significantly. So um, they've they've called this the faint young sun, sun paradox, and I've known about it for 40 years. And in the past 40 years, I've seen three or four different explanations, definitive explanations that were supposed to solve this problem. Hmm. Um, and, it, well, if if that's the case, then why why did you need another one to replace the one that was already definitive, you see? And most of them focus in on a changing amount of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere, with a lot of greenhouse gases to start with, and then as time uh, went forward – the greenhouse gases diminished and so forth. So it, it exactly compensated. And what you end up believing is that you have two unrelated events, uh, one not taking place in the sun, one taking place in the earth, two unrelated uh, with no feedback mechanism whatsoever, uh, exactly compensating one another for three and a half billion years. Hmm. I find that remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> that anybody can believe that actually is plausible to have happened. Mm. So that, that is and, uh, but if, 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 the, if the world is only thousands of years old, there's no problem because over a few thousand years the sun's uh, total output hasn't changed much.
1: right, right so that's a, that's a good argument for for a much younger universe, I would think. Um, but speaking of that, the biggest problem and maybe we can wrap up here I, 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 you don't have to speak to it exhaustively, but it is a, a paradox in some sense uh, of this light time travel problem because mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be, that we do have light distances kind of nailed down. You don't you don't land things on Mars if you don't know how far away it is, and we seem to be this this idea of how much distance is between us is measured by light. Um, so if there's really billions of years between you know the most distant stars and galaxies and us, um, for a young Earth perspective, uh, what is the current thinking on on this paradox? How do we explain distances and and time? In relation to to a young universe, what's your perspective?
2: Well, we call this the light travel time problem. There have been several different proposed solutions. I've got my own. I'll share that with you. I'll let other people put theirs forward. Uh, first of all, I want to point out that the light year is not a unit of time; it's a unit of distance. Mm-hmm. And um, the presumably the two are related, but uh, you got to keep that in mind. They're two very different concepts. Um, I believe that. <clears throat> much about the creation week is was miraculous and very quick i think god used a lot of process we find on on day uh, on day uh, five god day six god made man from the dust of the earth that's a pretty fast process but it still was a process um we find that on on day well also on day five uh, day six the land animals came up out of the ground I didn't see that for the longest time. It's repeated in in chapter two, and it brings in the birds from day five as well. Mm
0: -hmm. It talks
2: about the uh, waters on day five giving rise to to life, uh, swimming things, aquatic creatures. Um, But really, the dry land appears. And then it started talking about the uh, plants coming up out of the ground. And there are two actually, two different verbs used in verses 11 and 12, two Hebrew verbs that have overlapping meanings, caught my attention when I looked them up. And the impression I get is that from the meanings of those words that God caused the plants to grow up rapidly out of the ground, um, sort of like a time-lapse video of a, yeah. of a plant, which can be anywhere from weeks to, to years, depending on what kind of plant it is. Yeah. And the reason why God did that is he needed to mature those plants to provide uh, food for man and beast a couple of days later if they would have no- grown normally um, then everybody would starved to death pretty, pretty quickly. So I think what God did, I propose that on day five, uh, day, day four, when he created the stars, uh, he performed a miracle, not only to create those objects, but he also rapidly brought forth that light to, to um, fulfill their purposes, because there were several purposes given to the heavenly bodies. And if they would not have been visible, at least by the end of creation week, if not by the end of day four, then they could not fulfill their functions any more than the plants could have fulfilled their functions if they were not mature. Mm-hmm. So I think God rapidly matured the creation uh, during during that time. Some some of my creation science brethren, uh, they don't like my my answer because it's a miraculous, miraculous sort of thing. They're looking for physical, natural explanations in terms right. of general relativity and such. But my complaint with that is can you give me an example of anything else in the creation week which was natural or physical? I, I'm looking at it and I can't see anything that's natural. You get life from non life, you get light where none existed, you get matter and energy where none existed. Again and again and again, the miracle of creation violates everything we understand about how the world works today. Absolutely. So, why the white travel side would yeah. probably be any different.
1: Right. Well, and even the contemporary secular physicists and cosmologists who study, Big Bang and cosmogony and origins, um, you hear the f- repeated, often repeated phrase that the laws of physics break down, our current mm-hmm. knowledge laws of physics break down at what they call the, the singularity. So even if you have contemporary physicists and scientists who have no vested interest necessarily in the God question are basically saying, yeah, the laws that we know today were violated or weren't in effect or break down. Um, and it's it's almost a concession of a naturalist miracle that, that there's something extra uh, s- extra above and beyond or something that we haven't discovered or something that we don't know uh, it ends up being a naturalism of the gaps in some sense yeah. that 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 it, meaning go either way you can say well let's not let's not bring God in until we've ruled out all the naturalistic possibilities but that's saying like well let's try to figure out all the ways in which a car could assemble itself without invoking engineers and design of the, of the automobile um, there are two different legitimate questions. You can still say—you can still have a technical explanation, but you can also have a personal explanation. You can say God did this and, uh, and not have all the mechanisms. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, at church uh, recently about— um, uh, I, I, you know, because on our show, we try, Wayne and I try to get the best minds in both young and earth camps, and we try to give an open and ecumenical view for Christians uh, to, to, to have thoughtful dialogue with each other about this age question. And so we try to be as open as possible. But I was dialoguing with a friend of mine, telling him I was talking to some young earth uh, geologists, and uh, we talked to Hugh Ross to sort of balance that out. And um, um, anyway, I got into the discussion about the very thing that you're talking about. And I said, uh, well, what about the wine in Cana? I haven't heard of anybody trying to adduce a scientific uh, explanation for how Jesus actually, the the physical mechanism of how water turned into wine uh, almost instantaneously. And when the master of the feast tasted the wine, you know, what he knew about wine, he knew that was good wine. But knowing that it was good wine, if you were to ask him, sir, how old is this wine, do you think? What's he going to say? I mean, his knowledge of wine is that it takes time for good wine to develop. He's not going to tell you that that happened instantly. He's not going to tell you that that wine came about with a, with a command, right? Um, and I think my friend didn't like that. He's like, "Oh, that's not that's not good." And I said, "Well, it, it is. It, it addresses the problem. It, it addresses the problem <laughs> yeah. you're talking about. We're not talking about and, a universe, and, um, you know." And, so, yeah,
2: Can keep in keep in mind that the Big Bang has a light travel time problem too. It's called yes. the horizon problem. And right. They've been solving that with inflation for a long time, even though there's not a bit of evidence that inflation. Nope.
1: Ran. There's no inflaton. <laughs> Nobody's found an inflaton particle. Nobody's found uh, an inflation field. Um, Alan Guth in the 1980s came up with this idea. It It seems... In all due respect to Alan, who has who's a brilliant mind, I, I think even he's conceded, It's a little ad hoc. I mean, it does explain yeah. things, but it explains cool. things in a naturalism kind of naturalism of the gap. But but there's no there's no physical evidence for for anything of this actually happening, and uh, it is one of the most sticking problems in uh, in cosmology and cosmogony. Uh, you and I and Wayne talked uh, last time we talked. We talked about this idea of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Um, you know, that's that's the, the linchpin for Big Bang Cosmology. Look, we predicted this, and, and look, we found it, this, this most distant, faint light. But there were so many things that they didn't predict. Uh, they, they got the temperature wrong. Um, they got the uniform. <laughs> Nobody expected it to be uniform. Um, and certainly this seems at least... This is a field of study. I would be fascinated. We need more research on what this background radiation really is because biblically, I think you could make a case. This is just what we discussed. It's kind of hypothetical, but biblically, you could make a case that maybe what this is, is the separation of the waters from the waters. And then we have the expanse. And what we're looking at is maybe temperature reflection of some kind of water that God has separated from the rest of the universe. And the expanse is all the stuff we've been talking about, galaxies, stars, nebula, planets, and all that stuff.
2: That's been my position now for several years. It's radiation from that water above separated on day two.
1: Yeah. I think that's a, a, a something worth exploring. But now if you put that out there in modern physics, people will like – you're going to be like Copernicus, Danny, <laughs> With, You know, <laughs> writing letters. People are going to laugh at me. People are going to make fun of me. I don't want to propose a, a, geo, a, you know, a solar-centric uh, universe. I don't want to no. – but, but, but that's how science advances, I think. You propose something. It's yeah. not necessarily popular. You study it. And uh, look into it. But uh, Danny, thank you so much for your for oh. your efforts and what you do. It's a beautiful book, uh, "The Heavens: A Different View." Uh, Jim and and Glenn and you have put together a, a masterpiece definitely something that uh, you don't have to be a scientist to know that I appreciate the, the very down to earth vernacular you guys used in in, uh, in putting this together and how you've integrated good science thoughtful science, thought provoking science and, uh, and scripture that the ultimate meaning and purpose for why the universe exists is not ultimately for us um, but for the glory of God so beautiful work Danny and uh, continue on in your in your mission, uh, in bringing uh, the knowledge of the glory of God to to people. It's fantastic. Uh, Final thoughts here.
2: Oh, it's been a delight to be with you once again. It's it's been a very comfortable interview. I'm pleased with the book. I hope other people will enjoy it too. It's one of those things, it's like National Geographic. If you want to, just look at the pictures, but the the essays aren't that long either.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you have scripture throughout and and good sound theological reasons whether you are young earth or old earth. This is an excellent book uh to have. And uh you know, as as I and Wayne and I strive to do, um we want to and I know you do this and and you do it in the book and I think you do it well that um um, there's a lot of antagonism between believers. It's an in-house fight between this, in this age question, but uh, I think um, we need to continue to be ecumenical and as kind and as gracious to one another as, uh, as we uh, uncover the mysteries of the universe. I, think, I, I want your final thoughts on what you think uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to show us.
2: Oh, I have no idea. But every time we build the uh, the next big telescope, it, it surprises us. Uh, every, you know, they built the 100-inch telescope to replace the 60-inch. They built the 200-inch to replace the 100-inch. They go step by step by step. And every time you do this, you find things you would have never imagined. That's, so, right. that's uh, right. I'm expecting much, but I have no yeah. idea what it's going to be.
1: Well, that's an excellent point, Danny. Thank you for sharing that because I think every telescope that has been built has been a paradigm shift, more or less. I think it's safe to say, uh, has changed our perspective of the universe and has uh, has really altered our perspective on, on, on the heavens. So this one, I think we're gonna be untying a lot of Gordian knots and maybe creating yep. more. Um,
2: That's but, the way it always works. If you, you, you <laughs> yeah. answer several questions, you come up with 20 more. Right,
1: so. <laughs> right. Well, Hubble in the 90s, after the, yep. the, the, the astronauts fixed the camera and all that stuff, um, you know, Bob Williams, Decides to point Hubble at a blank spot of sky, and lo and behold, 3,000 galaxies. Later on, in the early 2000s, another blank spot of sky, and bang, 10,000 galaxies in a blank spot of sky. And so Webb is going to blow minds, I think. I think uh, the glory of God will be revealed even more. It's exciting to be alive at this time and to see things that no one has ever seen before in the history of humankind. It's amazing. Thank you, Dr. Faulkner. I appreciate your work and your effort and everything you do. Blessings on your
2: endeavors. Thank you.
1: We hope you have enjoyed this special broadcast today with astronomer, Dr. Danny Faulkner of Answers in Genesis. And we hope this has helped and encouraged you in your faith to remind you that God is faithful that the Lord Jesus, who created, numbered, and named all the stars, has created you, and knows you, and loves you. You can find details about how to get a copy of Danny's latest book, The Heavens, A Different View, in the notes below, as well as a link to our own book, The Story of the Cosmos, How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God. For Good Heavens and Watchman Fellowship, I'm Daniel Ray. Soli Deo Gloria.
0: Good Heavens is recorded and produced by Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. For more information about our podcast and ministry, including having our staff speak at your church, visit watchman.org. That's watchman.org.